Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer, with support from the North Face. Never stop exploring. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. Chorus, explore perfection. An element, restoring health through hydration. Alex, so for today's intro, I was trying to think of a, a rock and a hard place story. Um, situations where staying put is simply untenable, but the solution for getting out is is much scarier. What about the story from like uh, you know Peter Croft soloing in the rain sort of stuff? You know that story of him like using his knees in like little no. scoops. Have you not heard that? He, I've heard him tell no. that story a couple times in different contexts. You know, it sounds insane, but you're kind of like either he waits there and dies in a storm or he solos out. And so, you know, like he has to climb out. I've not. You, you never gotta, heard you this? Gotta, no, it's, you uh, repeat it. <laughs> I forget where it was. It's I don't think it's the Bugaboos, but it was some kind of like sort of remote, you know, bigger granite wall area in, in Canada, I think. And he was soloing some big face and it started to rain. And he had some kind of slab, you know, between him and, and where he was trying to get to, to get off the wall. And he found that his his feet, like his shoes, weren't sticking on the, the granite and the slab. I mean, because it's raining and it's all slippery. And he found that the his capoline, like, tights or, you know, basically his, like, long johns, whatever he was wearing, kind of stuck okay. And so he wound up, like, soloing out, like, putting his knees in little scoops, like, basically, like, kneeing these little scoops to, like, slab climb with his oh knees. Oh, my. That is... And, it's like this kind of crazy story where you're like, wait, you did what? And he tells it all matter-of-factly. You know, it's like, well, it was raining, and I found that my 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 tights would stick okay, so I just, like, crawled out on my knees, and it worked. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty classic Peter story, which also coincides with my other favorite Peter Croft quote, which is, you can climb in the rain, just not as hard, <laughs> which I say every, every time it starts to rain when I'm climbing, I think of Peter. I'm like, well, yeah. you can climb in the rain, just not as hard. There are those situations in life. We're in a bad situation, and the way out of it is not at all easy or without danger or peril, but it's less of a risk than just existing in that situation. I think that's kind of the essence of all true survival experiences. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when you get into some outrageous situation like that in an uncontrived way where you haven't put yourself in that situation, but it just sort of happened because of circumstance or whatever, and then it's up to you to, to sort of fight your way out. Yeah, and I mean, today we basically have a story about the choices that sometimes you have to make in order to survive. And it's, I think, pretty powerful. Today we talked to climber and photographer Nikki Smith about her journey through life and the risks she's had to take. And just a heads up, we've got some hard questions and honest answers. I'm Alex Arnold. I'm Fitzgall. This is Climbing Gold. When I was younger, we used to play this stupid game with my brothers and sisters where we'd like grab a blanket and lay it out. We'd usually roll like one of the younger kids into the blanket, you know, grabbing the edge and roll into the center until they were all wrapped up. And then, you know, just like pick them up and carry them somewhere, or, you know, just beat on them a little bit. And it just felt like my life, 
I had wrapped myself in a blanket when I was really young and I kept rolling and rolling and rolling. I had been rolling for so long inside that blanket that everything was dark, I could barely breathe, I just felt suffocated, there wasn't any light. I didn't even know which way to unroll anymore to get out. I just got to a point in my life where I had planned my suicide. And I knew that I either had to try to be me or I was gonna die. Yeah, my name's Nikki Smith. I'm from Salt Lake City, Utah, and this will be my 30th year climbing. I started in 1992. How did you start climbing? I was 16 years old. I had worked at scout camps when I was younger, and a family friend was a child therapist and had a group of like 8 to 12-year-old kids, and they wanted some youth leaders to go along on this outdoor trip to the desert. They asked me, and I was pretty scared because I'd repelled before and hated it. I was definitely afraid of heights, but there was something about climbing. Like as soon as I touched that rock, like my world went quiet. I wasn't thinking about all the things going on in my family or my own personal life. And I was able to just focus on what was going on right then and there. And it was beautiful. And and so you got over your fear of heights and, uh, no. and just fell in love with, uh, oh, no, <laughs> no, I'm still afraid of heights, but I can manage it now. Like, really? Yeah, like, if I'm climbing, things are fine. But, like, going up onto the top of the Eiffel Tower or, like, just walking up to the edge of, like, Dead Horse Point or the Grand Canyon on something, like, that scares the shit out of me. Getting on my roof is is really? pretty horrifying. Yeah. But when I'm climbing or, you know, going out there specifically for that, like, my mindset shifts. And it's just like, okay, I, I know what to do. And so then I'm okay. It seems that photography has been a part of your life for as long as climbing. Was creativity a part of your world growing up? I used to do a lot of creative things with my mom. I used to draw, sew, paint, knit, quilt, do all these things with her. But I think early on they probably saw some things that they didn't like. My father was an amateur photographer, and so he gave me a camera when he was five years old to try to get something that I could bond with him over. And I took a lot of really horrible photos on there. This was all on like um, negatives and print film back then. And he entered one in the Utah State Fair when I was five years old and I won a blue ribbon, which as a kid, you know, that's a pretty cool thing to to win some award. Um, and As a five-year-old? Yeah. Do you remember what the picture was? Oh yeah, it was horrible. It was like around Christmas time, it was a picture of one of the chipmunks, like Alvin, Simon, Theodore, Mm. like in some diorama in the mall, I think. I don't know exactly. It was pretty blurry. Like I still have it. It's framed in this um, little mount, like in my back room stashed away. But Classic. Yeah. And and so then did you, uh, you know, were you sort of an amateur photographer for your entire childhood? Yeah, I would do it here and there, but I still was more focused on drawing and painting and other other things. When I got into high school, I was able to take a darkroom class, and you'd get to get in there and manipulate the photo and make things lighter, make things darker, and you'd put this blank piece of white paper in these chemicals, and all of a sudden, this image would just appear like it was magic. And so I started doing climbing photos and that then, but it was still a hobby until... 
I was midway through college and bouldering at Joe's Valley. I was midway up this problem called the bowling ball, um, which kind of gives away probably what the pockets were like, but they're thin, shallow, and I just heard this loud pop, and I pulled a tendon on each hand uh, at the same time. <laughs> and so I couldn't climb anymore, and you know I was young, and that was my life. All my friends were in climbing, and like I want to keep going out, so... I'll just focus completely on photos. And so that's when I really got serious. I'm I'm hung up on you blue tendons in both hands at the same time. <laughs> yeah. That's that's horrible. Yeah, it was the ring finger on on each hand. Like Wow. What a I'm like remind me never to climb the bowling ball. <laughs> like that's that's it's heinous. not even that hard or like it's not that bad, but I don't know. Like I've always struggled with finger tendon issues and so oh, yeah. it's been huh. a problem. That's, 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 that's grim. But I guess if that led you to uh, photography, that's, you know, silver lining. It led me to photography. And that's also probably why I've built my reputation as an ice and mix climber. It's, you don't have to worry too much about blowing tendons in your fingers, holding on to tools. What do you love about ice climbing? What, what is there to love about ice climbing? <laughs> that's the... Uh... That's the real question. Sometimes I think it's the dumbest sport possible, but I just, I do love it. I don't know why. I mean, there definitely is something about the ephemeral nature of ice where, you know, it only exists a few months out of the year. And some of the stuff that I really like to do only exists maybe even a few days of the year. And like, I watch obsessively for it. And as soon as it's in, like I hit it and then it's gone two days later. And like, it's just, I don't know, so cool to go into an area that I've spent my entire life climbing in Little Cottonwood Canyon or in the Uintas. And, you know, I see it the same way. And then I go in the winter and it's a whole new world out there. And I get to revisit these places in a completely different way. It's a completely different experience. And I think that's beautiful like to just keep revisiting things with a completely different lens. And ice climbing gives me that. Through the years, Nikki poured herself into climbing in the local community. She established burly ice lines, bolted new routes, wrote guidebooks, played a key volunteer role with climbing organizations in the Salt Lake area, and was always there for the rest of the community. But there was a deeper struggle unfolding. I was struggling with knowing who I was inside, but not knowing really what that was. Uh, I didn't know what the word transgender was until I was in college. I just thought I was the only one like me, and there was something wrong with me. And so climbing was an outlet to just kind of shut off all the things going on in my world and be able to just feel free and alive and happy. I think it was 2003, I finally told my wife that I was trans. Hmm. Um, but I told her like, and myself that she didn't have to worry about it. Like I was stronger than everyone else and I would never transition. You know, I was in the army. I was a climber. I was all these things. And like, I fought with that for years and my life just kept getting darker and darker. Yeah. It was a very, very difficult thing. It wasn't like I wanted to come out. I, I wanted to go to therapy in hopes that they could cure me like they could make things better and I wouldn't have to like I 
I didn't want to be trans because everything I'd ever seen about trans people was negative and everything I'd ever seen about people who'd came out was negative. They lost their families, they lost their jobs, they lost, lost their friends, everything. And so, yeah, coming out wasn't something I wanted to do, but it was the only way to survive. I had never, like working 20 plus years in the outdoor industry, I had never met another trans climber. At that point, I think Madeline Sorkin was like the only out queer person that was sponsored. There weren't like out leaders of companies in the outdoors. I sat and listened to friends, coworkers say horrific things about queer people and trans people when we were out climbing or around the campfire. And then it's not just in climbing. You see that in your outside friends and family and your neighbors and it gets pretty dark. But yeah, that's, that's a terrible thing to hold on to. Like, yeah. You know. Yeah. It, in many ways, when you're, when you're not out, you live in this world where everything is dark and you expect and assume the worst of everyone because that's the lens you're viewing the world through is that negativity. After the break, hard questions get honest answers. I've been a North Face athlete for almost 18 years, which has been incredible and I've always appreciated their commitment to exploration. Summit Series is the name of the pinnacle North Face products that I use on every expedition, and I love that their tagline is athlete-tested and expedition-proven. I've personally tested these products all over the world, and they've always proven themselves. Future Fleece is the next-generation base layer that I wear almost every day of climbing outside, whether on the wall or at the crag. You can shop the full Summit Series collection at thenorthface.com. I first found Koros when I was looking for a GPS watch that could track my biggest outdoor adventures. I needed something with a massive battery life that was also robust enough to handle the climbing. As it turns out, Koros is the only GPS watch brand that has done some serious development for climbers, from multi-pitch GPS tracking to indoor programmed workouts. The watches have a mind-blowing battery life. The Vertex watch series lasts for more than 100 hours in GPS activities, so I only need to charge it once every several weeks. I only need to charge my watch so sporadically that I can never find the charger because I haven't used it in six weeks. (laughs) If you're interested in bringing new technology into your climbing training and tracking, you should consider their new Vertex 2S. Go to Koros.com and use the code CLIMBINGGOLD to secure a free watch carabiner with the purchase of your new Vertex 2S. In 2017, after planning her suicide, something shifted inside of Nikki. In 2018, she came out as transgender, first to close family and friends, and then more publicly on social media. Did it feel imperative to you to come out to the greater climbing community? I mean, you're going through this very personal moment in life. You're telling close friends and family. I could see, I could see not wanting to take that moment to a public stage because right 
you had heard how people talked. And instead, you grew into this role of being an advocate for the transgender community and really, you know, on a greater level, the LGBTQ community. I feel in many ways, I didn't really have an option. I knew if I wanted to stay in climbing, I didn't think there would be any other option. Um, I mean, it was not like I was hugely famous or anything, but, you know, in Utah, I've written five guidebooks. I've been a photographer for a long time, worked with a lot of the magazines. I have enough connection that to the industry that I knew I wouldn't be able to go unnoticed. And, you know, I'm 6'3". I, I can't go unnoticed anywhere. And so... It just felt like there wasn't much of an option if I wanted to stay within climbing, if I wanted to make things safer for myself, then I had to be loud. I I was worried that if if I stayed quiet, it would make it a lot easier to be attacked. And, you know, I'm still attacked all the time, but I have support by being loud. You know, there's so many amazing people that have got my back and are there for me when I need it. And I don't think a lot of them would have been there if I hadn't been loud because I never would have met them. And so I think in a lot of ways, being visible is definitely something I feel like I needed to do just for my own survival. You know, I'm glad that it benefits others. I'm glad that it's helping change things. But it's also helping me. And and so since you've come out, you know, I mean, has has the reality lived up to your expectation? You know, basically, like, is the world that dark? I'm like, I'm really hoping not. But but I'm curious, you know, what is your experience since coming out? I'd have to say yes and no. I think everything that I was worried about has happened, not to the extent that I thought it would, but I've lost friends, I've lost work, I've lost a lot of things. Overall, I think people have been really great, like there's been a lot of support, but in the last few years, we've seen the legislation that's coming out against trans people has more than doubled and quadrupled each year. The amount of trans people, visible trans people who were murdered keeps growing every single year. Um, you know, as we're more visible, there's more backlash. So I'm so glad I'm out, but as good as it is to be able to see myself every single day and not have to hide anymore, yeah, there's still a lot of negativity that's a daily part of my life. The first outdoor retailer trade show that I went to in Denver, I was made fun of openly on the trade show floor. People were staring, people were laughing, people were making jokes. Um, it was pretty shitty. It's changed a lot since then. Um, there's a handful of other visible trans people usually at events now. Um, still not that many, but yeah, it's it's very uncomfortable a lot of times being the only one like you somewhere. I'm sort of personally curious, how much of that do you attribute to living in Salt Lake and, and the Mormon community, like growing up in the Mormon community? Honestly, um, not a huge amount. Like my day-to-day -day in Salt Lake is not any different than I've experienced in San Francisco or LA or New York or anywhere else. There's hate and ignorance everywhere. 
Mm. Um, Salt Lake itself is actually pretty good. Once I get out of Salt Lake, things kind of change in more rural parts of Utah, but that isn't any different anywhere else I go. Um, When you go into smaller towns where traditionally people who are different have left, a lot of queer folks, you know, as soon as they're able to leave small towns, they do. And not necessarily because like people are horrible in small towns, it's just because there hasn't been enough exposure and it's really hard being the first one in some place to come out and worry about how people are going to treat you. And sometimes it's easier to leave and avoid that. So is it possible for you to, to sum up what you've, what you've gained from coming out? I mean, you know, it's like, you know, it's like those are tremendous risks and challenges and, uh, you know, you, and you've lost a lot through it, but, but what have you gained by, by being able to publicly accept who you are and, and like be yourself? I feel like I've gained connection. I hid from everybody. I didn't let people in fully and that didn't allow me to get to know everyone as deeply because if it started to get to a serious conversation, like I didn't want to have to share things with someone else about myself. So I would back away and not learn more about them. I've been able to connect with myself. I've gotten to know more about myself, I think in the last four years than I have my entire life because I didn't want to know it. I wanted to keep that buried. And so it's been a huge gift of connection, just learning about myself, feeling comfortable with myself for the first time, finding love for myself. I hated who I was my entire life. Didn't matter what I did, what article I got published or first ascent or guidebook I wrote, like I still hated myself. And I always felt like I was a lie. And now whether people like me or hate me, I don't care because I'm me. And that's all that really matters. Yeah, I I always knew like with climbing, I just had to be out there. Like if I if I wasn't working on another book or this next photo essay or the window for some rare ice line or something was closing and I wasn't there, I would just be so upset and angry. And you know, I, it wasn't until later that I realized that. That was just my way of staying busy and trying to prove to myself and others that I was worth something. And I couldn't see that then. Like all I saw was that climbing was my entire life and I didn't understand why I was getting upset, why I was always mad, why I was always unhappy. And it's just allowed me that openness to to review, I guess, who I am and the decisions I make. And... So, I mean, you said that climbing is was a great way for you to sort of manage everything else going on in your life or to help you. I mean, is is that like escaping from things or, or like just a reprieve from things? Like like basically, where does climbing fit into that? Like what role does it, what does it fill? I'd say it's both. Uh, I definitely used it negatively for a long time as avoidance. I think a lot of people do. It doesn't matter whether it's climbing or, you know, any other sport or gaming or alcohol or whatever, you know, it's it's about avoidance a lot of times and that can be unhealthy. There are really healthy aspects to it too that help us, you know, grow and learn and have this outlet, but it all depends on how you use it. And I definitely used it negatively 
and avoided it and threw myself into it, tried to use it to prove my worth to myself and others, and kept myself busy and distracted with it. But then you've also... Yeah, so the other side, it's definitely... I've learned a lot about myself. It's taught me a lot about what I can and can't do, physically and mentally. My father died of leukemia when I was 14, and growing up, being a a family that was dealing with cancer and didn't have much money, I never thought I would travel anywhere. And climbing has taken me all over the world. I've met all sorts of amazing people, um, get to do these amazing things, and that's how I make my living. Like That's a pretty amazing gift. After the break, we talk about how Nikki's passion for climbing has evolved. Element is a zero-sugar electrolyte drink mix formulated with a science-backed ratio of sodium to potassium to magnesium. Each packet delivers a meaningful dose of electrolytes free of sugar, artificial colors, or other dodgy ingredients. It tastes great, and I've used it extensively on expeditions. Element is formulated for anyone looking to restore health through hydration, and is perfectly suited for athletes, folks who are fasting, or those following keto, low-carb, whole food, or paleo diets. Try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, they'll refund your order, no questions asked. So whether you're a new or returning Element customer, you can get a free Element sample pack with any drink mix order when you go to drinkelement.com slash climbinggold. That's drinklmnt.com slash climbinggold. Dr. Squatch crafts natural, high-performance personal care products with no harmful ingredients. I don't shower often, but when I do, I use Dr. Squatch. I especially like the Summer Citrus Bar Soap. From soap to shampoo to conditioner, they help me look, feel, and smell my best for whatever adventure I go on. They're offering listeners 20% off any purchase for new customers with the code CLIMBINGGOLD, or you can go to drsquatch.com slash honald. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. How did transitioning impact your relationship with with climbing or the act of climbing? I have such a harder time tolerating cold anymore. It's amazing how hormones change things, and like I definitely that, has it made that big a difference? Oh yeah, it's huge. Yeah, huh. yeah. So much of how cold somebody is is based on on hormones and really? hormone levels. Yeah. Should I be more sympathetic to my wife complaining oh, about totally. cold temps? Uh huh. <laughs> Yeah. Huh. Interesting. You know, there's a reason that women have to tape more often for cracks. Um, and like, you know, a woman can walk by something and barely brush it and have a bruise or a scratch. And guys mm. can run and slam into things and nothing. You know, it's the women's skin is thinner. Uh, estrogen, like the higher amount of estrogen you have, often the thinner your skin is. And so there's a lot more bruising, cutting of the skin, like there's more heat loss because of that. And there's, there's a lot of other things going on and why, yeah, it's, it's hormonal. I've lost about 40 pounds of muscle overall. My frame is very different now, um, than, than it was four years ago. Um, and so that's been really huge in, you know, seeing, I thought I had good technique and then I saw how much I actually pulled through 
through things once I lost a lot of that strength. Through this whole process, being slightly more comfortable with yourself, have you, um, are you slightly less hungry or driven as a climber in any way? Like, you know, if, if you talk about using climbing as like having something to prove and trying to prove something to yourself and others, you know, now that if you're not using climbing in that way, has that changed your motivation at all? Like, have, you know, are you more relaxed as a climber? Are you pushing as hard? Uh, I definitely feel like I'm more relaxed as a climber. I feel like when I do go out there, I'm out there to have fun. I'm out there because I want to, where a lot of times I felt like I was getting out there too early after an injury or I wasn't in the right state of mind to be doing some of the things I was doing and put me in dangerous situations. And now I feel like when I'm making decisions, I'm making smarter, more well-informed decisions and I'm willing to pass on things that I shouldn't be on in the first place because of conditions or mind state or whatever. And I wouldn't have made that decision in the past, but I still, I feel like in some ways having the drive to climb because it's what I really want to do, not what I have to do to avoid things has rekindled my passion into climbing even more. Like I I love it for 40 plus years. I played a character and everything I did in that was really trying to hide who I really was. And so I've had to look back and examine like, okay, is climbing really me? Or is that just something I used to help survive at the time and that fit because of who people perceived I was? And I struggled with that for a few years after I came out, whether I would actually stay in climbing. And ultimately, I've been able to see that I actually do love climbing. I love the movement. I love the places. And but I had to I had to look inward and see whether I was it was something I actually enjoyed for myself. I mean you've taken tons of physical risk in climbing. And then your whole life, emotional risk, personal risk. How, how do you see the difference between sort of physical risk and, and sort of like personal risks and, and and the challenges that those both present? I don't know. For me, I don't feel like I'm a huge risk taker. When I get on something, I feel like if I'm going to get on it and I'm going to put myself out there, I know what I'm doing. I've been climbing a long time. I feel fit, whatever it might be, to where I don't feel that it's that big of a risk at that time. And if it is a risk, then I choose to back off or I do something else instead of that objective. Um, So I don't feel like I take a lot of risks. I feel like I control that as much as I can. Though, of course, that is what everybody says on the show. I mean, that is literally what all climbers say. Like, oh, like almost, uh, I mean, we've interviewed a lot of people about risk and, you know, we've been talking to a lot of alpinists this season and everybody says they're not a risk taker. And yet, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've lost plenty of friends in the mountains over the years. It's like, Mm -hmm. you know, everyone says they're not a risk taker right up until they die in an accident. A lot of the decisions in climbing affect whether or not you live or die, you know, so in some ways it is actually higher stakes, but I mean, I know exactly what you mean that, that the personal risks, like, you know, your identity, who you are, I mean, that definitely feels much more meaningful than, than the like, oh, I could die on this, even though technically if you die, that is much worse. <laughs> you know, it's like For sure. But like when, when you're trans and you see the amount of visible trans people being murdered every year, the amount of hate 
crimes and attacks on people, the things that that happen, the the rate of suicidality among the trans and queer community because of that lack of acceptance. Death is still looming constantly in the decision-making within the queer community. Everything I've done since I come out has been to try to be the person that I didn't have, that I needed when I was younger, that I needed even a few years ago. I think when you don't see people that are visible as athletes or guides or mentors or leaders, it's really hard to envision yourself in that same role. And so I'm I'm taking a lot of the approach of trying to help elevate more folks to be able to be visible and tell their own stories. Now, I've, I've never been photographed by another trans person. I've never been interviewed. I've had a lot of interviews, whether it's in print or video or podcasts. And, you know, it's never someone from my community that's interviewing me. And the story's often told wrong. Like, I'm always always worried about what the final result's going to be. I've had articles where someone has created a, a quote that I never said and never would say and no trans person would ever say. You know, and that stuff gets thrown in there all the time, I'm sure. In the past, you've had articles that, like, that's not what I said. That was misconstrued or whatever, and it was because someone wasn't familiar with climbing or whatever it might be. And so, at least for storytelling and photography, trying to do more to get people from their own, our own communities to be able to help tell our own stories. Rather than trying to get the outdoor industry itself or people to change, I'm trying to help support community. And so I worked with Mountain Hardware and created a photo camp where they gave a full ride scholarship to six photographers from underrepresented communities. And they're all amazing photographers who haven't fully had the access or learned how to take climbing photos, how to ascend a rope and all that. And so we put together this multi-day workshop where we go over how to send fixed lines, how to think about climbing photography, get them the equipment they need, um, the training, work with the magazines to talk about how do you do an editorial pitch and help try to support them to tell their own community stories. Nikki, I'm curious what you tell the younger version of yourself now. Is there a bit of advice that you'd give? Yeah, I think a lot of times there's these campaigns and all these things, you know, like it'll get better and it can, but it doesn't always get better in the moment. It doesn't always get better when you want it to, but there's an amazing sense of freedom and happiness that can come from being yourself and living authentically, regardless of what what your identity is and being truly you affects everyone around you and I think by being yourself you attract people that are going to support you that are going to become your friends your family and help build community and will start to change things so so how how do you think people should should help support I think a lot of it for folks is just 
standing up when something is being said, someone is saying something horrible. Like it's still really disheartening going to a crag and having a lot of people around and someone says something to me or others and everyone stays quiet. It's like I don't go to the climbing gyms much anymore because it's so uncomfortable in there when people say things and I'm surrounded by people who do nothing. Hmm. And so at least starting by just standing up for what's right and calling out your friends, calling out your family and saying that what they said is not appreciated, that it's wrong and, and just being there for other people is huge. The people who, who stood up for me when I was coming out and were there for me helped save my life. Like I drew my strength from those people who supported me and I got, I don't take that for granted at all. And it's huge. And like everyone needs someone to support them in one way or another throughout our life. And being there for someone is a huge gift that you can give to someone else, but it's also a huge gift to yourself. Thank you, Nikki, for sharing your story. After we recorded, Nikki had a first. She was photographed by another trans photographer. Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer. Alex Honnold is our host. This episode was written and edited by Lauren Delani Miller and me, Fitzko Hall. Additional editing by Matt Martin. Production help from Austin Syadek, Evan Phillips, and Anya Miller. Music from Brennan O'Connell, Cordelia Gazares, and me. Our executive producers are Becca Call and Lisey Hendricks for Duct Tape and Beer, and Jonathan Redzik and Ben Endy for RXR Sports. You've been listening to Climbing Gold.